Welcome to the Passages Podcast. I'm Christy Cooney of thestateoftheArts.co.uk. We publish features and reviews on arts, culture and politics from cities around the country. In this series, I'll be talking to writers and other public figures about a passage of text of their choice, be it an excerpt of prose or a poem or a historical speech or whatever. I want to talk to people about passages that had a formative effect on them or that they think are important at this juncture in history or that they just think are particularly brilliant. I'm very pleased to say that my very first guest is Raphael Baer, a wonderful columnist for The Guardian and former political editor of The New Statesman. Raphael, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, the passage you've chosen is Wilfred Owen's Parable of the Old Man and the Young. So I'm going to ask you to start us off by reading it through. Okay. So Abram rose and clave the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife. And as they sojourned both of them together, Isaac, the firstborn, spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abram bound the youth with belts and straps, and builded parapets and trenches there, and stretched forth the knife to slay his son. When lo, an angel called him out of heaven, saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him, behold, a ram, caught in a thicket by its thorns, offer the ram of pride instead of him. But the old man would not so, but slew his son and half the seed of Europe one by one. Thanks so much. Now, um, so tell us why you chose this poem. Uh, I chose the poem uh, primarily because it's a brilliant poem. Um, And I came across this uh, many years ago. We studied, studied a bit of war poetry, probably at school and... Seafried Sassoon, uh, Wilfred Owen, Rupert Brooks were always the big names, and uh, Dolce Decorum Est is probably the best-known Wilfred Owen poem. And this one I hadn't come across, and it was around Armistice Day uh, that, and, and I was looking through some some war-related material for something, and I just struck this this I saw this poem, and it it struck me as just qualitatively different from a lot of the other war poetry that I'd come across and it really hit me uh, in a very different way and I couldn't quite work out what was so effective about it but it really stayed with me and so and so every November when you get to the the Armistice Day um, Remembrance Day sort of season this is the one item that always um, sort of comes back to me Um, and then now we're around the sort of centenary of all the the First World War um, commemoration. So last year was the centenary of the Somme. Um, next year is going to be the centenary of the, you know, there'll be a big one, 100 years since the end of the First World War. So we've just been, there's just been a lot of thinking about the First World War going on. Um, and what I, what, what I particularly like about this, this one poem is that it, for me, I'm going to, it's a difficult thought to express, I'm going to try and express it, is that it, it seems to capture simultaneously what is very immediate and present about that war and the sense that it's also you know, 100 years it's actually a long time ago it's receding from historical memory and some of the the cultural references and the things that would connect us to the people that actually fought that war are, are, are fading away into a more kind of ancient realm of history it's just it's not quite as modern as it was you know, even quite recently, the First World War felt felt more modern. The number of people who fought in it are, you know, are, are passing away. The number of people who would remember that as a present part of their lives are passing away. So 
and I think it's it's chiefly because of the the sort of biblical imagery, and this is why when you asked me to choose a text, um, I was interested in talking about this one. The sense that it's referring to things, it's got a whole set of cultural connotations that that are, are sort of reaching back, almost sort of fading further and further, receding back in time, and that just sort of spoke to me. It's sort of an appealing thing to talk about. Mm. And well, on so on this subject of it being different to a lot of other war poetry. I know what you mean in that when you read it, it's a much more, particularly poems like Dolce de Coromest or a lot of Wilfred Owen's best-known stuff. There's a much more almost accusatory tone to it. In Dolce de Coromest, it's... Sure, there's the, the, there's an anger there, but it's it's aimed at jingoism and enthusiasm for war. And most of the way he makes that point is just by describing the life of the soldier and trying to bring it home to people for whom it's not a reality. Whereas here there's very definitely an explicit accusation levelled at the people who are organising this war, isn't there? Yeah, and, and there's something... But it doesn't come straight away. This is the mm. thing that... What I, I mean, as you say, it's not, it's not set initially sort of in the trenches on the front line. Um, and... It's, I mean, it's a brilliant piece of writing. I, mean, the, 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 I went back, actually, and looked at the verses of the, from the King James Bible text, from the, 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 which is the version of the story of Abraham not almost but not sacrificing Isaac uh, that it alludes to. I mean, I wonder, is it worth unpacking that story for people listening yeah, to do, this? Do, I mean, yeah. because um, it, so there's, it's the story in Genesis it, where... Essentially, uh, God says to Abraham, uh, you need to go and uh, make a burnt offering, make a sacrifice, uh, and it's your son you have to sacrifice. And he goes and he um, prepares everything. And as in this poem, Isaac says, where's the, the lamb for this for this slaughter? And Abraham says, well, you know, I'm going to sacrifice my son because that's what God wants. And then an angel appears and says, Steady on. Okay, we get it. You're, you're you're properly afraid of God. You will do as he commands. Don't sacrifice your son. That would be a crazy idea. There, behold, there is a, an animal to sacrifice caught in the thicket over there. And what's more, you'll now get God's blessing and you will go forth and multiply and your seed will be strong. So Wilfred Owen's audience for this, everyone who came across his poem more or less would have been very would be much more familiar with the bible and these bible stories in that particular text as well uh, than probably most of us are um and would have immediately spotted the the deep subversion in this so it sort of builds the story almost exactly as as it is in uh, in the most familiar translation of of the book of genesis um and then he just seeds in really gently the beginnings of the fact that actually what we're talking about here is the war so right up until it's line sort of 6 or 7 you know which is where's the lamb for the burnt offering up until that point you're 100% still in bible times and then abram bounded the youth that's still pretty much you know in the book of genesis and it says with belts and straps and that's the only moment you go well, hang on a second this now word no belts and straps in genesis um suddenly you're you know the the, the you're sensing that we're moving into modern times. And then the next line, builded parapets and trenches. And all of a sudden you realise he's basically yanked you into onto the, sort of the Western Front. Um, and then it still continues in that, that sort of biblical idiom, um, right up until the, the sort of 
the, the reveal that you have from the book of Genesis, behold, there is the ram for the burnt offering. You don't have to kill your son. Um, and then just one thing that I really love about this poem is up until that point, that line, offer the ram of pride instead of him. That's line 14. Yeah? So, um, which is a so- sonnet length. So mm. you've got basically a complete sonnet there. Again, rhythmically, and it's in iambic pentameter. It's in the kind of loose iambic pentameter. Mm. So rhythmically, your reader knows that you just sense that that's basically a, your finishing point. It's exactly, it's mapped onto the story of the Bible and you can sacrifice the ram and that's how it ends. And then you have the extra two lines that's not a sonnet. It's got these other two lines. It says, no, Abraham said, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to kill every one of the youth of Europe because that's easier to do for me, than as the sort of the patriarch figure, famously, um, than uh, swallowing my pride, and then the the idea that you know, the, the sort of the payoff in the the Bible version is that because of Abraham's sort of deference to God, he's blessed with you know very fruitful seed, to use the the, the terminology. Um, the exact version here. You know, the the older patriarchal generation of Europe going into the First World War basically killed their children, mm. and it's that it, it's the, the subtlety as you were saying. It's just, it's just it's not it's different. It's not in the the kind of the grit and the grime of the trenches that the impact is. It's just it's taking a sort of macro bigger step back and just making very very succinct away that moral point about what actually happened there, um, and that is sort of effective as I say has a punch. In a, it's not in a different way. It's not sort of that sort of narrative punch of a lot of First World War testimony. Well, and it's I, what I love about the, the the last line is, like you say, there's the hints as it goes through it the, the, about what about what the real topic is. But I love how when you hit the last line, the whole poem, especially when you read it on the page, kind of unfurls backwards before you. And the the last line, sorry, the last few words, one by one. I think is, is yeah, it's really, gruesome, isn't it? it? I yeah. mean, it's basically systematically sacrificing because it's quite a shocking story I mean the the, <clears throat> the Bible story the original one it's you know it's classic it's quite hardcore Old Testament um, it's not messing about and um, the idea of even the idea of of, of the demand that, that um, someone sacrificed their own son it, it sort of it reaches back to a much sort of harsher more brutal um, uh, idiom so again bringing that back as you say that one by one that it's there's nothing accidental about it. I mean, it's quite kind of premeditated, systematic destruction of a generation of people. Well, and particularly when you when you when you read a bit of the history of the First World War, you there's almost this sense that you can you can forgive the fact that there was a willingness to go to war because they all thought it would be over by Christmas. Well, that's what the kind of that's what the history of it says. But then by the time, even by the time, like you said, you mentioned the Somme earlier, by the time you get to those big battles of Verdun and, and the Somme of 1916. This is a war that's unfolding day by day and it's just become a war of attrition and that's almost a stated policy. And well, what's extraordinary also about it, that, that I mean, it, these things are sort of cliches now in a way because mm. they've been gone over so many times, but it still amazes me that you didn't need to introduce conscription until very late in the war because there were so many people who would have seen it as their duty to go and fight for king and country. And for those who were a little bit ambivalent about that as a concept or who had started to get vibes, you know, that, you know, Christmas had passed and then another Christmas and maybe this wasn't as um, uh, going to be as straightforward as had been advertised. Um, there was enough moral pressure from teachers and 
um, parents and fiancés and everything else, you didn't basically want to be a coward. So you had to go... Uh, so that, that generation were bullied and pressured into laying down their lives. Um, um, by sheer coincidence, I recently reread All Quiet on the Western Front, um, which obviously comes from the, the German perspective, but is you know, essentially the same... Uh, the same narrative in many mm. respects of people who were made to feel by their elders that going off and fighting for the Kaiser was an entirely non-negotiable rite of passage and something you had to do for everyone else. And the anger, you know, as you know, the 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 soldier volunteer soldiers realised that they'd been completely stitched up and this was entirely pointless. Uh, that sense of is described as a kind of living death that you can't you know you can't go back to your old life and all the values that you had been taught to live by are corrupted by this massive betrayal that all the figures of authority that you previously were taught to defer to have mobilized their great authority their great sort of moral leverage over you to send you to go and murder people just like you and probably be killed and so you they came that generation came back from the war so profoundly traumatized it, it, i don't think any of us can really begin to understand the the sort of psychic and emotional shock waves that the survivors of that would then bring into europe mm. and it was that trauma that in many ways and again i think this is sort of underappreciated a little bit when we go forward and talk about um, the politics of, of appeasement in the 1930s and how it was that so many people looked at what was happening in the rise of fascism and the rise of Hitler in Germany and and you sort of couldn't see that this was something that just needed a, a, an aggressive and forceful response. Well, part of it was because of the experience of the First World War and people mm. thinking the one absolutely the one thing you know above anything else is you mustn't go back to Europe being at war. Um, and that it's easy looking back now from the perspective of after 1945 and saying, you know, well, appeasement was obviously stupid, and naive, and wrong. Um, I think there would for people for the generation that had that had sort of understood the trauma of the First World War, it's a more understand more comprehensible dilemma. I think. Yeah, well, on the you mentioned earlier on um, Siegfried Sassoon, I came across reading around this poem, the, the declaration that he had read out in Parliament, he gave a letter to a sympathetic member and asked them to read it out in 1917. And I've got an excerpt here, he says, I believe that the war upon which I entered as one of defence and liberation has become a war of aggression and conquest. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. I make this protest because I believe it may help to destroy the callous complacency with which those at home regard agonies which they do not share, and which they have not enough imagination to realise. And what's amazing is that he was interned for that. They, the generals had him declared mad. <laughs> well, it's not. And, and, and it just interested me that he's saying, what, what he's saying there is not a million miles away from what Wilfred Owen is saying in that poem there. Well, Wilfred Owen idolised Siegfried Sassoon, mm. um, uh, and also like this, the poem that we're talking about, and most of his other work, was... was was published posthumously, um, which is worth mentioning. Yeah. 
because he died just before the army was killed in action, just before the armistice. But what's what's fascinating about that is the, and again, it's a really interesting concept. And it, this slightly brings us into our time, this idea that there's a particular kind of courage involved in standing up when there is a, a sort of force 10 patriotic gale blowing in one direction and standing up and saying, you're just wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's a kind of um, looks a bit sort of treasonous to say everything that you're saying, that everything that you know, the elders and betters and older generation are saying about a necessary thing that the country has to do um, is just wrong. And the what's interesting is simultaneously, we it's very hard to imagine anything equivalent on that scale happening now because we just, I think, thankfully, mercifully, do not have the same overarching forces of class deference uh, that would mean... Yeah, that that conscription point again. The idea that you know, you can you can sort of mobilise and you can crank people up into a kind of patriotic nationalistic fervour over certain things, um, but I don't really see that you would then actually get people queuing around the block to enlist and to go and fight in a war, volunt- you know, on a voluntary basis, get possibly get themselves killed in in you know in the name of king and country. Mm. I just don't think that that sort of cultural apparatus exists anymore. Uh, and so in, it's a, it, it always seems like a disservice to the memory of, of the people who, who both fought in, that, in the First World War and the dissenters um, to draw analogies with, with where we are at the moment. But I do find it fascinating when you get this sense, you know, you look at some of the headlines that we have around Brexit and the way that there is this um, or at least on one side of the argument, this determination to ramp it up into a kind of nationally galvanising project, um, any opposition to which is is kind of weaselly and borderline treasonous. Um, you just... It's always worth remembering that that whole idiom, that whole sort of... The, 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 the structure of an argument that says... By voicing your dissent against this, that is in itself a kind of treacherous act, you know, albeit in dilute form now, is a really toxic, toxic way of conducting a conversation. And it's kind of, if not actually physically deadly anymore, it's kind of intellectually deadly. It's such a stultifying way of crushing the you know, a sort of civilised conversation about what is and isn't a good idea mm. in politics. Well, I mean, there are... Particularly on the in, in the on the topic of Europe, there are there are two ways that people like to invoke at least the Second World War, which is one is to say that those soldiers died, um, that Britain would be kept free and independent, and the other is to say they died that Europe might be peaceful uh, and indeed um, united. Um, do those two visions, or at least their proponents, necessarily come into conflict at some point, do you think? That's a good question. I think it's interesting that from there's the data in terms of how people voted, it's not, it's not, it's not a sort of slam dunk you know, argument one way or another, but there is evidence to suggest that you know, we don't know probably that older people 
vote were more likely to vote leave. There is a correlation there. But then the very elderly, do you get a little tip back towards remain? Um, uh, and just and I know an anecdote isn't doesn't make data, but well, it does make data, but it doesn't make sufficient data to <laughs> on which to build an argument. Um, um, but I know uh, a, a sort of 93, 94 year old man who happens to be my wife's grandfather, so my children's great grandfather, uh, and pretty much the, the the last time he he's still alive. But the last time he was independently mobile and able to go out and you know, go for a walk himself and do something was to get down to a polling booth to vote Remain uh, last June um, because he was a veteran of the war. And he very much understood it in the, the latter of the two propositions you put forward, mm-hmm. which is that if you've seen what European nationalism does, which came to its apogee uh, in in the middle of the 20th century, um, you, you, you don't mess with that stuff you know you don't take you don't gamble with the forces of european nationalism and you understand the european project uh, as conceived in its most idealistic form which was to bring the nations and the peoples of europe together um so that they would be so bound together in economic and cultural um, and political collaboration that there'd be no incentive or no reason to ever go to war ever again um then you have i think a, a, a sort of a trope that comes actually from a generation slightly that slightly sort of missed the war, more baby boomy generation, um, who grew up not with the experience of fighting the war, um, but in the, the, whose formative experiences were the sort of carnival of patriotism uh, and, 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 and justifiable triumphalism. Mm. <laughs> I mean, let's not forget that it was a good thing that the Allies won that <laughs> war and that yeah, the role Britain played in that was, was utterly heroic and brilliant. Uh, and, um, but also, you know, famously, you know, as Churchill said, our finest hour. And if you've decided as a culture and a country that your finest hour was a moment in sort of 1941... Then it's quite. It sort of feels like it's downhill all the way from there, and I think uh, this is a roundabout way of answering your question. But I'm struck by the fact, and I think this is really gets to the heart of what is wrong in many ways, what is problematic, I should say, with the way we've with the Brexit debate as we've had it. That the decision to join the EEC, as it then was. Um, in the early 1970s, came at a moment where Britain was really feeling down on itself. It was in this sort of state of national low self-esteem um, because having won the war and generally sort of you know, really sort of surfed that wave of aren't we great for a couple of decades, you notice that France and Germany are doing really well. The rest of Europe, you know, a bit of Marshall Plan money and a bit of ingenuity in various reasons is doing rather well and the UK is thinking okay well actually out we've lost our empire this is all a bit embarrassing and humiliating we need to basically throw our lot in with this European project now that that's a position of supplication and, and weakness and that is a that was a kind of a moment of shame for a lot of people you just feel embarrassed and if you look back if anyone looks back on things that they regret or the things that you, you think, think now imagine a moment that you feel uncomfortable about from the past or that you don't like a memory you don't like it won't be physical pain it won't even be loss mm. because you can deal with that it'll be something really embarrassing <laughs> shame 
that's the most burning that's the feeling if you could if you could obliterate a memory from your head never have that memory again it'll be a memory of shame mm. and there was an element of shame in the decision for the UK to join the European Union which meant it kind of had to be expunged and for that generation so not generation that fought the war but just the, the sort of baby boom older ones who really vote, voted leave quite quite big numbers yeah. for the Farage generation the generation to whom Nigel Farage really speaks um, that's the Brexit that had a lot of that in it, that sense of we don't, you know, it was always a bit embarrassing that we felt we had to do this, we shouldn't have to do that, we can stand on our own, we can do our own thing, we can be independent. Um, uh, and it took a lot of, I mean, it brings us back to the, the, the Wilfred Owen poem, uh, that it took a lot of swallowing pride to say, no, we're just a sort of medium-sized, quite punchy, but not superpower European country, you know, we're a pretty strong economy. We've got nuclear power, nuclear weapons, you know, seat on the Euro- UN Security Council. So, yeah, we rock, you know, in, in the general global pecking order. But, you know, it's probably still big picture in our interest to club together with Germany, France, Italy, these other countries, Belgium, you know, Slovenia, and say, right, let's all be part of this wider European project. That's in our interest. There was that, that required swallowing a certain amount of national pride that for a a lot of people, it just wasn't a kind of culturally palatable thing to, to do. It hadn't been for a very, very long time. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that isn't uh, sort of critical or sneering or, or dismissive of those emotions. I just think that is part of our national identity as a country. We weren't, we just weren't up for it, the whole European project in, in the bigger way that you described, which is a really long way of answering your question. But the, the short answer is yes. <laughs> Um, will then um, this period be the equivalent for our generation or at least for um, the sort of 20 to 40 year olds now when we've got uh, Theresa May having to um, get straight to Donald Trump's White House yeah it's a good question is it there's a lot of commentary around about how you know it all feels a bit 1920s again and you know you look at what's happening with Donald Trump and and that to, there's no, there's not really any doubt in my mind that he has a a kind of fascistic temperament. I don't think it's necessarily helpful to say that he, you know he, he is an organised fascist because I don't think it's as coherent as that. But there is, um, so I think. A, 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 but nonetheless. Um, you know, we're certainly about to see the the resilience of of the U.S. Constitution in its ability to check a kind of tyrannical sort of mood. Um, that, that that's going to be tested, which will be interesting. I and I think what will be in, in sort of in answer to your question, I think the the generation that I think has, is was sort of will have be politically coming of age now I mean simple point there's no doubt that Brexit is obviously going to be the defining moment the the, whether or not people were old enough to vote for it or or old enough to vote and didn't um, yeah thanks guys Um, (laughs) or did vote for it and then come to regret it or vote for it and it turns out to be be brilliant let's not exclude the possibility that this is is actually the right thing to do I mean Mm. I was a Remainer but let's keep an open mind Whichever of those outcomes, it's going to be fascinating to think that it will be settled one way or another 
by the time someone who was... Let's say you put yourself in the position of someone who was 17 on June the 22nd <laughs> last year, um, then is going to be able to vote in the next general election. You'll be looking at a set of political choices where the single biggest thing that is going to affect the whole of your future, and if you then have children, your children's future will... Ah, it has, fundamentally set the, the destiny of the nation that you belong to on a different course was settled on the eve of you acquiring suffrage and that's a massive thing to happen I can't I don't think any equivalent thing happened to me when I was that age and it, it is and it goes back to what I was saying earlier I think it, it, it it's too it feels facile and sort of disrespectful to anyone who has been involved in the war to compare it to a war. Mm. Um, but just in terms of a, the sort of seismic structural activity, things on which the, the history pivots, it's, it's really big, mm. <laughs> which also sounds really trite, but I, I don't think we've, any of us has yet fully grasped because when you're living in the middle of something that big, you just sort of get on with it. But, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years you'll look back and, uh, on 2016, 2017, surely as you know, epoch-shaping kind of pivots in history. We should touch, you, you touched on it briefly earlier, but the, we talked before about the presence of the Bible in this poem, just to um, change tack slightly. Does the, does the impact of a poem like this rely on it being, as it were, alive in the public consciousness, the Bible being... I mean, because you could, you could quite easily imagine the James Joyce of centuries hence, writing his Ulysses using some part of the Bible narrative. So clearly uh, stories um, or legends or religious or otherwise can be used in literature or whatever. Yeah. I mean, does, does, the, does, the, but does the gravity of a poem like this rely on the role that Christianity has played in Britain? Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. I, my instinct is that it does... Up to a point. I mean, I'm I'm an atheist, um, but I had uh, enough of a religious education to be quite familiar with Old Testament stories, um, and so I sort of I knew that that Abraham and Isaac story, and I find I do think it, it, it's the poem is, I wouldn't say it's inaccessible if you'd literally never come across that before, but it would be quite baffling. I mean, it would take mm. a lot of footnotes and commentary to, to unpack uh, what that means. And then you come, and then you appreciate it, and but then you've introduced a layer of, of distinction, a layer of alienation from your appreciation of it. Whereas if you were a, a devout church-going Christian and you read that and you got to the final two lines, um, it's a punch in the face, really. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a very different way of experiencing the same, the same text. Mm. Um, but it, I think this is true of lots of things. This is true of uh, knowing, uh, you know, sort of canon Shakespeare, or you know, you say mentioned Ulysses. I mean, knowing classical texts. Um, I'm. It's interesting. I'm a little bit old fashioned about this. I just feel um, you. It's just. A familiarity with these the, the canon in a I mean in the secular sense works that the, the foundation blocks of the culture that we live in um, 
it's just a, it's like knowing your times tables mm. in maths. You know, obviously you've got a calculator, so you don't really need them. But if you're if you've got them there, your 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 capacity for mental arithmetic to make connections and do things quickly mm. uh, and instinctively is that much richer. Now I'm, I know that this is a, actually probably more controversial. I suspect this is more controversial than I realise because I mean the other problem with that canon stuff is it was all written by. It wasn't all written, but it was substantially written by, you know, white men in a context where now we look back and you can see all the kind of problematic values and social mores that would make you want to bring critical distance to that. And, you know, you can't teach everything to everyone. And so there is this question, if you're emphasising the importance of you know, Shakespeare's hard to disentangle if you're not familiar with Shakespearean language. Would you really want to sit every school child down and make them learn Old Testament Bible stories if you're not in the business of indoctrinating them into the Christian faith? So I wouldn't go so far as to say in a sort of grumpy, you know, Bufton Tufton, regimental tie, old man kind of way, isn't it a tragedy that people don't know their Bible stories anymore? Um but I do think you lose something if you don't have that, you know, and there, there will be countless examples of equivalent things that I don't know, which mm. mean that when I come to some text or film or piece of culture, the, the lack of that cultural apparatus um, means I'm just not appreciating it as well as I ought to, or sorry, ought to is wrong, as well as I could. Mm. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but I'll ask you to close the episode by reading once more Wilfred Owen's The Parable of the Old Man and the Young. Yeah, with pleasure. So Abram rose and clave the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife. And as they sojourned both of them together, Isaac the firstborn spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abram bound the youth with belts and straps and builded parapets and trenches there, and stretched forth a knife to slay his son, when, lo, an angel called him out of heaven, saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. Behold, a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, offer the ram of pride instead of him. But the old man would not so, but slew his son, and half the seed of Europe one by one. Raphael Bear, thanks so much for being our guest on the Fastest Podcast. Thanks for having me.